Good morning, and welcome to Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. This past week, two of New York City's bravest died from injuries suffered while battling a blaze at a Bronx discount store. They join a long list of city firefighters killed in the line of duty. Coming up on this morning's show, we'll take a look back at the years 1830 through 1865, the heydays of when the city's fire department was still all volunteer. Also this morning, some people call it advertecture, but preservationists have other words to describe oversized billboards in New York City. I think it's corporate graffiti, frankly. More on the fight against billboard blight coming up on Cityscape. First this morning, I'm joined by Donald Collins. He's the author of The Volunteers, a historical novel of New York City's early firemen, 1830 to 1865. Donald, great to have you. Thanks for having me here. The first firemen that are recorded in New York City were actually night watchmen, but that goes back uh, to Peter Stuyvesant in the 1600s. Uh, They weren't actually firemen, but they are considered the beginning of firefighting in New York. When you say night watchmen, were these individuals standing on top of a watchtower just looking out for fires? No, not in those days. They prowled the streets. They were also called prowlers. And uh, they went walked around the streets at night, and they carried a, a large staff. They were actually night watchmen on patrol looking for fires and, and other things. Your book focuses on the volunteer fire department starting in the 1830s. They had been organized in New York earlier in the 1830s, but it was rather haphazard uh, fire department in those days. But the uh, New York State Legislature actually controlled most of what took place in New York City in those days. And they reorganized the fire department in 1830. And at that time, they appointed a chief engineer to oversee the fire department. And he had 48 engines, six ladder wagons, and one hose reel at his command. Describe New York City for us in the early 1800s because it's not the New York we know today. How big of an area was the volunteer fire department responsible for taking care of? It extended to from the Battery up to about 15th Street was was pretty well built up by uh, the 1830s. New York City had passed Philadelphia with a population of about 200,000 and had become the financial and business center of the United States. But at that point in time, then, was the equipment they had enough? Well, they, they were still using it in the 1830s. New York City had kind of lagged behind Philadelphia. In 1806, Philadelphia, two Philadelphia uh, firemen had invented uh, what they called riveted leather fire hose, which were long 50-foot sections of leather all riveted together and was uh, very compact and tight, and therefore they could use, use hose. Uh, New York lagged behind them. In 1830, they only had one hose company, while Philadelphia had probably a dozen at that time. Why is that? Well, in the early days, hose was very unreliable. Uh, It appeared in the 1600s in in Holland, but had disappeared from use because it was so ineffective. New York firemen were rather proud fellows, and they prided themselves on their manly abilities in those days to pump the engines. And so they had just one long nozzle, which uh, extended from the top of the engine, and they'd go up close to the building and stick that nozzle in a window and and pump away. That was the way they fought fires uh, in New York at that time. The introduction of the steam fire engine was something that was initially rejected by volunteer fire departments. Oh, yes. Uh, the, the steam fire engine was uh, viewed by firemen as a very unmanly way to fight a fire. They had no intentions of using that, and especially in New York City and Philadelphia. Who were the volunteers at this point in time? What kinds of lives did they lead outside of the fire department? 
Actually, most of the volunteers in early days were, were well-respected businessmen uh, in both New York, Philadelphia, Boston, and the major cities. Uh, they took the lead in, in establishing these fire departments in the early days. And uh, they were reputable men who with uh, a genuine desire to serve their city. Didn't some volunteers, though, at this time have a bad rap? In the 1840s, the, with immigration in the nation coming to a um, you know, real flow in those days, a lot of the immigrants came here and didn't have jobs and uh, were actually just hanging around. So they found these fire companies, which were spread through all the neighborhoods, as a nice place to congregate, and it became a real problem. This was called the New York City Volunteer Fire Department, and the word volunteer applied to the firemen. But along the way, these uh, immigrants and uh, others, uh, especially in gangs like the Bowery Boys, would hang around the firehouses, and they became known as volunteers. So it became a very complicated deal in those days to separate the firemen from the gangs. The firemen were urged to keep these people out of the firehouses. Oh, yeah. They were urged to do it. But but there were a lot of circumstances that came along that uh, made them change or not not pay too much attention to the gangs because these engines were some of these engines weighed two ton and while they were allowed to have 60 men most of the companies never reached that that number so it was a great thing for the boys to come along and grab on the drag lines of these engines and pull them to the fire and the firemen welcomed that help the book opens with a very dramatic fire in new york city's history that's the great fire of 1835 what were the circumstances surrounding that blaze that made it so difficult for firefighters to battle? The first thing was that it was uh, it was in December, just before Christmas, and the temperature had plunged to 17 degrees below zero. The fire department, of course, when you have that kind of uh, temperature, you have everybody trying to heat their houses as well as they can. So there were a lot of fires that had occurred uh, for the two days prior to the Great Fire. In these engines being out in that kind of weather, most of them were frozen up, and the hose was frozen, and it was a very, very serious situation when the fire alarm finally struck for the Great Fire. Now, the volunteers really had to fight the mayor on this, too, because they wanted to blow up buildings to help prevent the spread. New York had elected its first mayor in uh, under the electoral system in 1833, and it was Cornelius Lawrence. The fire chief was elected by the firemen themselves, and he was Jim Gulick. And there was no love lost between Gulick and, and Mayor Lawrence. So all along the line in fighting this fire, there was a lot of contention between the mayor and the fire chief. What's also interesting here is that Philadelphia was called in to help. Well, they weren't called in. <laughs> the, the fire in New York City was so so intense. It covered uh, 17 acres, basically uh, an interesting thing is that this, this fire in 1835 covered almost the same area as what was devastated in the uh, attack on, on 9-11. And this was a big fire, and the fellows in the Independence Hall, well, it was, it was the State House at that time in Philadelphia, in the Watchtower, could see the fire in New York. And they knew it was a big one, so they sounded the alarm in Philadelphia. And the mayor uh, asked for 400 volunteers to take a train from Camden, New Jersey, up to up to New York to uh, assist in battling the fire. Unfortunately, the river was frozen, the Delaware River was frozen in, at Philadelphia, and they couldn't get across to get on this train. So they, they were very, very dejected about this. 
But 23 members of the Franklin Fire Company went back to their station, and they decided, well, if we can't go by train, we'll go by foot. They left on a Thursday, pulling a two-ton engine in minus 17-degree temperatures in a hailstorm and snowstorm. And it took them four days to get to New York uh, to assist the New York firemen. It became one of the most uh, heroic mutual aid stories in American firefighting. Did this incident lead to any changes within the firefighting industry? Everything began to change with the advent of hose. Uh, There was very little hose at that time. Within a couple of years, there were more hose companies in New York City than there were engine companies because now they could simply attach their hose to a hydrant and get water on a fire right away without men pumping on these engines. Although, in many instances, they still had to increase the, the pressure within the hose lines by attaching them to the engines and pumping up the pressure. What's interesting about New York City firefighting, too, is that it had a profound effect on the city's infrastructure. Wasn't the Croton Aqueduct pushed because firefighters needed a steady water supply? Yes, it was. It was, it was a very uh, hot topic to supply water to the city. And uh, actually, it was a very big political battle. But uh, those who supported the water system won out, and uh, the Croton water system was installed in the city. Another fire worth talking about is the Jennings Clothing Store Fire of 1853, which you talk about in the book as well. At that time, it was the most disastrous fire in the history of the New York Fire Department, and it continued that way up until, I believe it was in 1958 or somewhere in that period where there was another fire that killed uh, 12 New York firemen. Twelve men were killed in the uh, Jennings Clothing Store fire when uh, when walls collapsed on them and trapped them in the building. How has the way firefighters are alerted to fires changed over time from the 1830s onward? In the early days, it was uh, the bell or the hoop uh, being rung from up in a tower, the fire alarm bells, and... New York City had a whole system of watchtowers, very tall buildings that had watchmen in them, and they would be up there with their uh, spyglasses looking around the city. And if they'd spot a fire, they would tell them the bellman to sound the alarm. And then they would put a lantern or a flag out of their tower pointing in the direction of the fire. That was the way the firemen could look at these towers and know which way to, to go to the fire. In addition to immigration, what other aspects of the city's evolution in terms of its population impacted the volunteers between 1830 and 1865? Well, the city was, was growing upward as well as, uh, as outward, and the firemen, actually in those days, there were no extension ladders as we know them today. All the ladders were straight ladders, and most of them were only 40 foot long, which would, would accommodate a third, uh, three-story building. That was one of the one of the things that they saw changing in New York City that had to bring about a change in the way they would get to the upper levels of buildings. Donalds, what impact did slavery have on New York City at this time, and did it affect firefighting? Uh, I'm not so sure that it impacted firefighting as much as it impacted the the, the city itself. And uh, New York was a very very busy city with with its ports and did a lot a lot of business with the South and earned a lot of tax money from from cotton coming through New York City. So New York City was rather favorable to the South and wasn't uh, a very good friend of Lincoln when he ran. Speaking of the South, New York's volunteers did something for firemen in Columbia, South Carolina, many years ago, and Columbia never forgot. Why don't you explain that for us? 
when the New York City Fire Department, uh, Volunteer Fire Department, was disbanded, they the firemen stayed together and they formed the Veterans Firemen Association. And these fellows paraded right up until uh, the 1900s. Some of the old survivors were still around. In 1867, the firemen from Columbia, South Carolina, sent a letter to the Veteran Firemen's Association in New York saying that they were trying to reinstitute their volunteer fire department in Columbia. Uh, actually, New York volunteers were in the Union Army at that time in Columbia and helped burn Columbia down. So they felt a little bit of an obligation to help these fellows. So they went together, and they, they actually they asked for used equipment. And the fellows in New York said, no, we're not going to send them used equipment. So they went out, and they purchased a brand-new hose carriage, a thousand feet of hose and a hundred uniforms, complete uniforms, to send to Columbia, South Carolina, which they did. But on the way down, the ship sank. And in the meantime, the fellows had gone down by train to be there when the when the ship came in, and they were very disappointed. So they sent word back and immediately raised another five thousand dollars. They went to a fire engine manufacturer and had him take one of the engines he was building for somebody else, fix it up for Columbia. And they sent it down. When the engine was uh, installed in the firehouse in Columbia, one of the state senators said uh, how thankful they were to the people of the Empire City and should a need ever occur that uh, you would need our assistance, it will be there. When 9-11 happened, New York City lost a tremendous number of pieces of fire apparatus. And the children of Columbia, South Carolina, started a fund drive. They raised a half million dollars and purchased a hook and ladder truck, which is now in service in New York City. Did New York firefighters have a big influence for fire departments elsewhere in the nation in history? Oh, yes. New York City was was the premier fire department because of its size. And when the gold rush occurred in 1849, uh, many New York firemen, many New York firemen, and Philadelphia and Boston, Baltimore, headed for the gold fields. And when they went out west, they took within this spirit of community service that, that had been so instilled with them, in them. And uh, they began starting fire departments out west. Many, many of the fire departments on the west coast were organized originally by New York City firemen. Your book clearly involved a lot of research, and you recount many of the costly fires in the city. We talked about a couple of them. You introduce us to many of the people who served as firefighters in the city's history. How did you go about getting this information and making sure it was accurate? The major source of this is a, is a book that was written in 1887 by Augustine Costello, who was the historian for the New York Fire Department. And he spent more than 25 years accumulating these stories while the men were were there. He talked to the actual volunteers. And his book is uh, probably 1,500 pages of just detail after detail of, of every engine company, every hose company, and all of the firemen, all the major firemen in New York City at that period of time. He He wrote little blurbs about all of them. And there were some really interesting firemen there, including who we now call Boss Tweed, who began his political career as the foreman of America's Engine Company Number Six, and rose up to his uh, rather inglorious end in New York City. Many people would be surprised to learn that a volunteer firefighter created America's pastime. A fellow named Alex Cartwright, whose father was a uh, seaman, 
and traveled the world, and he came home with this uh, game called Rounders that was played in, mostly in British colonies all around the world, and everybody had a different version of it. And Cartwright took the game of Rounders and evolved it into what we now know as baseball. And he set the rules down, and he start, he was a member of uh, Knickerbocker Engine Company number 12. So he called his, his team, the, the New York Knickerbockers Baseball Club, organized the, the rules and set up the first game, which was played, I believe, in 1846 at Elysium Field in Hoboken, New Jersey. It was the first official baseball game in the United States. And this is commemorated in the Baseball Hall of Fame. It is. For many years, uh, Abner Doubleday, who was a Civil War general, was credited with starting baseball. But after uh, descendants of Cartwright started complaining a little bit, uh, they, there were investigations held, and it turns out that no one could ever find any connection between Doubleday and baseball, but they found plenty of connection between Alex Cartwright and baseball. Alex, by the way, went out, off on the gold rush, uh, spreading the game of baseball across the United States, and then when he reached uh, California, he went on to Hawaii, where he became chief of the Honolulu Fire Department. Fascinating stuff. Donald, how much creative liberty did you take with this book? Uh, the details of the of all the fires are as detailed as I can get from accounts of the period. Now I I, I put a little romance in here, a few <laughs> little things here and there that I think are necessary today to keep interest going. It is very very accurate as far as firefighting goes. Today we know the New York City Fire Department as a paid fire department. What prompted the city to replace the volunteers? Actually, there was a big move that started in the, in the 1850s to put in a paid uh, fire department. The, the city of London had established a paid fire department, and the insurance companies in New York City wanted to uh, do the same thing. But in England, the insurance companies paid for the fire departments. Over here, the insurance companies didn't want that expense, so they wanted the city to pay for it. So they started a job, and it so happened at the time that many of the people in, in New York City Council owned stock in the insurance company. So there was sort of a little get-together between the insurance company and the council, and they, they pushed for this paid fire department. It had to come. There's no question about that. It had to come because the city was just getting so big, and and the volunteers were off on new jobs. All these new jobs were being created because of the Industrial Revolution. There were just so many new ventures that, that men could go into, and they, they began to lose interest in the volunteering. I was reading an article from the New York Times dated February 17, 1865, that cites not only bad behavior among the city's volunteer firefighters, but also economic inefficiency and a poor record for saving buildings. This is some of what was said at the time that the volunteers were converted to a paid department. Much of it is true, and a lot of it is the result of a public relations campaign which was put on by the insurance industry. Uh, it's, it's interesting to note in the chief engineer's report in New York City, which was re required every year in New York City, I listed every fireman, his job, and his address. And as you look at these annual reports and compare jobs and watch the new jobs that are being formed, one of them that began to show up in the 1850s was the job of public relations practitioner. And during this, this effort to discredit, actually the effort was to discredit the volunteers, the insurance industry put a lot of money up, and they paid their way into the newspapers to, do, to say everything they could against the volunteer fire department. You were raised, Donald, in Marcus Hook, Pennsylvania, correct? 
That's right. You served in the fire department there? Yes. Marcus Hook is an industrial town. It's a, it's a borough. It's one square mile, and it's 20 miles south of Philadelphia on the Delaware River. It's a highly industrialized. We had three oil refineries, uh, large uh, manufacturing facilities there, and uh, a volunteer fire department of two companies. And my father was the fire chief in, in Marcus Hooks. And there were at one time, there were uh, four of us in the family who were, were volunteers. Did anyone in your family ever serve in the New York City Fire Department? None of us were ever paid firemen. What sparked your interest in writing this book then? I've always been interested in the history of firefighting. Actually, I, when I was a kid, I learned to read from my father's books. As a fire chief, he used to get a lot of these books mailed to him from uh, uh, various publications and uh, I, I was always interested in it, and I read it, and I knew a lot about the history of firefighting. So I started a magazine a few years back called Firematics, the Journal of Fire Service History, which was rather popular. But then I, I took a job that took me away from that, and uh, I had all this information in my head, and I decided I'm going to do this. Donald Collins, the book is The Volunteers, a historical novel of New York City's early firemen, 1830 to 1865. Thanks so much. And thank you for having me. More information can be found at thevolunteers1830-1865.com. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Borarki. Some may call it a sign of the times, but preservationists in New York City say they're fed up with the proliferation of outdoor advertising. The Municipal Art Society says many of the massive billboards popping up are illegal, and the city needs to do something about it. Earlier this week, I took a walk around Manhattan with the Society's Director of Special Projects, Vanessa Gruen. I think it's corporate graffiti, frankly. I mean, I think that if this were graffiti, the city would have removed it. Now, you're going to point out to us some of these signs. I'm going to show you some of these signs. If you want to walk down to 27th Street, there's a uh, display of three of them, and I think it's uh, an interesting display. Let's go take a look. Often we see in New York City, more than ever because of so much development, the construction scaffolding, and that scaffolding often includes advertising. That's right, and all of that advertising is totally illegal. That's one very, very easy um, signage to pick out, and that is any, any signage on a sidewalk shed or a construction shed is illegal. You're not allowed to have any sign except for a sign that shows the establishment underneath that's being hidden by that signage. Okay, now let's turn around and want to show you these three signs. And you see the first one at the very top for the Jaguar car is totally illegal. First of all, it's too high up. You're not allowed to be any higher than 40 feet, no matter where in the city you are, except in Times Square or on 34th Street at 7th Avenue. You cannot be higher than 40 feet. That's clearly higher than 40 feet. Underneath, they have just erected a billboard on top of the building where they've stuck a sign. And that's, first of all, it's too large. Second of all, you're not allowed to just put a billboard up on a building and then put a sign on. And then underneath, covering this two-story building, you have this Molson beer ad, which they've just strung around the corner. And that, so you have three examples of three illegal signs, one on top of the other. 
There are several on 2nd Avenue where there are billboards that go down the whole side of the building and you can see that they're covering windows and if maybe these are rent control tenants, I don't know, and maybe the, the landlord just decided that they really wanted to make a little extra money out of their building and they just strung the billboard down. Let me play devil's advocate here for a moment because if we were to go back a number of years to the late 1800s, early 1900s here in New York City, there were people who used to paint signs on the sides of buildings. Now, isn't this just a natural progression of advertising? Well, it's a natural progression, but when you had people painting signs, it took them a long time. It was very, very expensive. Ever since they have this new technology of being able to print large signs on vinyl sheets, it's become a lot easier to cover a whole building, and it's subsequently it's inexpensive to do this. And so there's a saturation of it, but meanwhile, we have to live with this saturation, and I think it disturbs our cityscape. Vanessa Gruen is with the Municipal Art Society. Last week, the Buildings Department implemented new rules regarding outdoor advertising. On the phone with me now to talk about them is Edward Fortier. He's the director of the Sign and Padlock Enforcement Units for the Buildings Department. Edward, thanks for taking the time. You're welcome. It appears, at least visually, that the city is being bombarded by outdoor advertising. I recently took a walk around the city with someone from the Municipal Art Society. As you know, they're concerned about the proliferation of outdoor advertising. First of all, what is the role of the Buildings Department in regulating that sort of thing? The signage that you see on the streets now, most of the signage that appears requires permits, which are issued by the department. There are different regulations that apply to business signs versus advertising signs. Permits are obtained for the construction of signs for electrical connections. And additionally, there is an annual permit for signs which are illuminated. So when it comes to the big billboards, these what some would say are oversized signs, what are the rules? Well, the rules vary by uh, the location of the sign. Manufacturing areas are the most liberal where advertising is allowed and larger signs are permitted. Commercial districts are uh, more tightly restricted on what is permitted generally just in the way of business signs, and virtually no signs are allowed in residential districts, advertising signs. But clearly we're seeing a lot of these signs in residential districts. Right. We have had a problem with a proliferation of large, um, sort of these vinyl signs that are stretched over buildings. Um, In many cases they are illegal. Uh, The department does respond where we're requested or where we notice illegal signs to issue violations against them. The fact that you're able to make these signs quickly, these vinyl signs quickly, makes it easier for people to get them up and take them down. To have one in place is very simple. In most cases, it's anchored to the building. Um, And again, the removal is, is probably even easier. I would imagine the buildings department doesn't have the resources to walk around the city and to document all of these signs and to go after those that are posting illegally. The efforts that we've made in that direction are that we will um, often conduct enforcement sweeps, that is, we'll go into certain areas, such as we may go into everything south of Canal Street, or we may go 14th to 59th Street. Um, We do have a special projects um, inspection team that goes out particularly and works on the sign issues for us. What are the fines that are imposed for posting signs illegally? Fines for um, outdoor advertising companies range from uh, about 5000 to $25,000, depending on the offense, depending on whether or not it's a first or subsequent offense. The penalties for building owners 
um, are lower, and the, the city traditionally um, does hold uh, lower penalties for building owners. Those range starting at about $800 and I believe up to maybe 2500 From what I understand, it can be very lucrative for a building owner to allow outdoor advertising on their properties. Do you think the fines are too low to be a deterrent? Well, what we've done is this. Rather than, um, rather than determining new fines for building owners, pursuant to the new regulations, which went into effect just last week, property owners that are involved in advertising on their property more than to the extent of simply leasing space to a registered outdoor advertising company will themselves be held as an outdoor advertising company. This gives us the ability to apply um, the much greater fines to those property owners. Um, in addition, if they are not registered with us, we would hold them liable there, and there are penalties as well for being unregistered. So we've closed that loophole with the regulations that went into effect last week. These regulations also crack down on advertising posted near highways and parks, correct? Right. What we've done is the new regulations require the outdoor advertising companies themselves to register, and then we are taking a very close look, having them come in and register particularly all signs within 900 feet and within view of an arterial, and also within 200 feet and within view of a park of one-half acre or more. So we are concerned about their entire inventory, and for that reason we have them register as a company. But particularly, they're coming in and registering each and every sign within those stated areas as well. Transit officials and the NYPD, when it comes to terrorism, say if you see something, say something. Is it helpful for the buildings department to get calls from people who want to let you know about illegal advertising? Oh, certainly. Uh, Calls that are placed to 311 are routed to us. Edward, thanks so much. Okay. Edward Fortier is the director of the Sign and Padlock Enforcement Units for the New York City Buildings Department. That's all the time we have for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boraki. Thanks for listening. The podcast of Cityscape gets support from WFUV's contributing members. Find out more at WFUV.org.